0: Hi everybody, I'm Arlia Campbell and I'm super excited to welcome you into a new series on the KC Sports Network storytelling channel. Throughout this series, you're going to hear the behind the scenes stories of the greatest players to ever put on a Chiefs uniform. Now you might feel like you already know them based on how woven these guys are into the fabric of Chiefs lore. The highs and lows of their career sit somewhere in the space between Kansas City legend and collective memory. You've likely cheered on their wins, mourned the losses, and witnessed a lot of this history as it happened. But now you're gonna hear the stories behind those moments through the eyes of those who live them. This is my story. Today's subject needs no introduction, but we'll give you one anyway. He's a Chiefs Hall of Famer and Ring of Honor member, 11-year NFL vet, all of those, by the way, in Kansas City, pro bowler, a coach, dad, son, husband, teammate, and true one-of-a-kind Kansas Cityan. This is the story of Tim Grunhard. Enjoy.
1: My story starts in 1968, born on the south side of Chicago. To a Chicago policeman and an RN nurse. Uh, there was two of us, my brother and I, and uh, we were right away from, uh, from birth uh, introduced to sports. Uh, my brother was a heck of a baseball player who ended up making it all the way to triple-A with the California Angels and Oakland A's, and, and I loved baseball too, but for some reason, I think I ate myself out of the opportunity to play baseball. Uh, they used to, they moved me to catcher, but uh, eventually, uh, they said, you'd probably be a better offensive lineman. But going back, uh, one of the things that we always did in our neighborhood, we had a bunch of neighborhood kids and that was a great part of the, of the area that we grew up in. We had little parks and and we had little uh, golf courses that we would sneak on and get chased off of. And we would play baseball in baseball season. We played football in football season. We played basketball in basketball season. And believe it or not, we would play hockey because they would freeze people's backyards and we'd play hockey in the backyard in the winter. So every sport in every season I was involved in. Uh, so that was one of the things that I think made me a better athlete and gave me an opportunity to have success all the way through college and the NFL because I felt like I had a, a uh, uh, kind of a foundation of being an athlete. Uh, we weren't slotted into a certain sport. Uh, we played every sport. to high school i realized that i wasn't the biggest the fastest or the strongest in fact i was far from it Uh, but uh, one of the things that i always tried to do was try to rise raise my level uh, to the competition so uh, the guys that i went against i'll never forget our freshman year we uh, went into the weight room and i don't think i could bench 125 and these guys were throwing 225 around like it was nothing so I realized, that, listen, I had to get a little bit bigger, and I had to get a little bit stronger, and I really put a lot of effort into that. But as I went through my high school career, kind of a turning point for me was uh, at St. Lawrence High School in Chicago, right by Midway Airport. Uh, I, um, uh, our sophomore year, uh, three guys got brought up to the varsity, which was the big thing back then, if you were a sophomore player going up to the varsity when they started the playoffs, and I wasn't one of them. So I said, you know, um, I need to reevaluate here. And, you know, at one point I thought, you know, maybe I'll just quit football and just play baseball. Because I was playing baseball and I was pretty good at it. But I said, you know, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to challenge myself to get to that level that they won't ever pass me up again. And going into my junior year, um, I had some success early. Uh, obviously on the offensive line. And then in my senior year at at St. Lawrence High School, um, I was offered a bunch of different scholarships, but I wasn't offered a scholarship to the school that I really wanted to go to. And that was University of Notre Dame. Jerry Faust was the head coach there, and uh, he just point-blank came in and said, listen, Tim, you know, we, we like the way player you are, but you're just too small. But there was four other guys from my high school that were offered scholarships there, and I wasn't. So, once again, very disappointed and dismayed and really was upset with the school that I loved. You know, from, from the first, second Uh, that I started watching football, there was two teams that I watched. There was Chicago Bears and the University of Notre Dame. And uh, kind of a side note, uh, when I was three years old, my aunt was living in New Mexico in a place called uh, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Now, not a lot of people know where Truth or Consequences, New Mexico is, but she lived down there and they owned an Ace Hardware store. And in the Ace Hardware store, they had a little sporting goods section, just a small one, and uh, every year, whoever won the Super Bowl, uh, they would buy the helmets or the T-shirts or the jerseys from that team. Well, this was right after Super Bowl Four, So guess who they bought from? The Kansas City Chiefs. So my aunt uh, came to Chicago from Truth of Consequences, New Mexico, when I was three years old and brought me a Kansas City Chief helmet. And I looked at that helmet, and I looked at my dad, and I said, there's only two teams in my mind that uh, I know, and one is Chicago Bears, and that certainly isn't a Bears helmet, and it certainly isn't a Notre Dame helmet. So I started to cry. And my aunt, uh, she laughed about it. My dad said, listen, I'll take care of it. So my dad took the helmet went down to the basement and got some gold spray paint and spray painted the Kansas City Chief Helmet gold. So I wore that helmet everywhere. I wore it uh, to mass on Sundays. They couldn't take it off me. I wore it in the backyard running around. All summer, that helmet and I had adventures all around the backyard and every sporting event that I went to, my brother's baseball games, you couldn't take that Notre Dame helmet off. And by the end of the summer, I wore it so much that the Kansas City Chiefs red started to bleed through the gold of Notre Dame. And I have a picture of it. And isn't it funny that 20-some years later, the only two teams I ever played for in consequential football games, not counting high school, was the University of Notre Dame and, my aunt was right, the Kansas City Chiefs. So, um, you know, going... Uh, into Notre Dame, uh, I was, wasn't was offered. But Lou Holtz offered me a scholarship at Minnesota. And, uh, you know, I was interested in Coach Holtz. I really liked Coach Holtz. But I certainly didn't want to go to Minneapolis, Minnesota and play football in the winter. Nobody did. I mean, let's face it. It's cold and snowy and miserable. And when you have schools like Texas and South Carolina and some other schools offering you uh, which I was very blessed to have, uh, I said, you know, I'm probably not going to go up to Minnesota and play football in that cold weather. So I really liked the University of South Carolina. And I was getting pretty close to committing there until at the very end of December, Lou Holtz took the Notre Dame job. And as soon as Lou Holtz took the Notre Dame job uh, after Jerry Faust was fired, uh, he started his recruiting process pretty much in early January and he called me and said, you know, we're interested in you. We're uh, not going to offer you a scholarship yet, but we want you to come visit the University of Notre Dame and uh, so we could take a look at you and talk to you about the options. So my mom and dad and I got in the car. We drove from the south side of Chicago around Lake Michigan uh, uh, through Gary, Indiana, and all the steel plants, and the next thing we knew we were in beautiful South Bend, Indiana, looking at the Golden Dome, and And I thought, this is where I want to make home, but I wasn't offered a scholarship. So on Friday, went in and visited with Coach Holtz and the family, and still no scholarship offer, and went on a visit with my recruit, uh, uh, the recruiting uh, coordinator and and the host, and uh, had a nice evening kind of walking around campus and enjoying the campus. And and Saturday morning, uh, got up and went to breakfast with my parents, still no scholarship uh coach holtz uh, was probably still debating whether he wanted to give this six foot two and a half hundred 265 pound guy from the south side of chicago a scholarship or not uh sunday morning uh we went to meet with coach holtz at the last minute and he said tim we're going to offer you a scholarship to the university of notre dame and of course uh, i tried to act cool and say okay coach well you know i'll think about it and i'll let you know and as soon as I walked out of that room, my parents said, why didn't you just commit right there and tell me you're going to Notre Dame? That's where you always wanted to go. And I said, uh, you know, I don't know why I didn't, but uh, obviously, uh, you know, this is where I want to go. But, you know, let me just kind of think about it for a little bit because, you know, I was a little bit upset with Notre Dame because they didn't recruit me right away. And then I was the last guy they offered a scholarship in for that class in 1986. So uh, about three or four days later, I picked up the phone, called over to the Notre Dame football office, and I'll never forget Jan, the secretary, answered the phone. I said, Jan, is, uh, is Coach Holtz that I'd like to speak to him? And uh, she said, Sure, I'll, I'll patch you through. And uh, at that moment, uh, Coach Holtz said, uh, Yeah, this is Coach Holtz. said, Coach, this is uh, Tim Grunhart, and I'd like to commit to the University of Notre Dame. And he said, okay, well, we'll send you a letter, and, and uh, we'll, we'll get some information to you, and, and uh, uh, good talking to you Bye." I was like, wow, that was anticlimactic. You know, at the University of Notre Dame, there's, there's one story that uh, I love to tell, because it really is a microcosm of Lou Holtz, and really my four years at Notre Dame. As a freshman class, we came in in 1986 as Lou Holt's first class at the University of Notre Dame. So we felt like we were pretty entitled, that we were going to be the team of the guys that they built this next team on. We were going to be the future of Notre Dame. We were the first class that Lou Holtz actually recruited. So we felt pretty good about ourselves in the summer, working out and then, you know, getting ready to go to camp. And we were all sitting in the back and, and you know... Probably a little cocky looking up at the guys that just got beat, just abused by University of Miami uh, when got Jerry Faust fired uh, in 1985. And we're looking up at those guys and saying, you know, those guys are the has dans those are, those are guys that are gonna be gone, and this, this is a group here that we're gonna build a foundation, and this is a group that is gonna take Notre Dame from the ashes and bring them back to the notoriety and greatness that, that Notre Dame should be. So, Lou Holtz walks in, first thing he says, I want all you guys to sit down, put your feet on the ground, sit up, and I want all the guys that I recruited to stand up. So, we're looking around, like, here we go. Coach Holtz is going to say, I want you guys to look back there at this class, these other guys that I brought in. This is going to be the future of the program, and you you know, and, and, and all those great accolades from bringing in this class, and I'll give you guys my best Lou Holtz right here, so... He said, for all you guys that I recruited in 1986, standing up, I want you to look around. He said, if I had one more month of recruiting, none of your asses would have been here. And at that point, we looked around and we said, "Uh uh-oh, I guess we're still at the bottom of the barrel here. So he let us know right off the bat that uh, we weren't anything special. And he let the guys in, 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 the, in the first couple rows going going up know that hey, that you know everybody was on the same even keel. But that was Lou Holtz. He uh, When he felt like you were getting a little bit too big for your britches, he would kind of knock you back down. He was a master psychologist. So that's one of my favorite uh, uh, moments there is just kind of being slapped back to reality a little bit knowing that uh, nothing was going to be given to us. to Notre Dame as a as a freshman and um, realized I was a pretty good long snapper and uh, Lou Holt said uh, you know listen if you can long snap and do all those kind of things we'll get you on the bus and that was the big thing back then and anybody's ever played any kind of uh, sport in college you want to get on the bus you get on the bus you got an opportunity uh, which meant you got to dress and go on the road trips you know just about everybody just for the home games but you always want to be one of that guy that was going on the away game so I earned a spot on the bus as a long snapper and started as a long snapper and uh, had a lot of success, good snaps, and would run down there as fast as I possibly could. Believe it or not, I used to be an athlete. And, um, you know, would, would had a couple of good tackles, and people would, after the game, would say, hey, you're that number 75. You're that guy who makes all the plays on the punts. So that was kind of my thing that I was known for uh, my freshman year. But the cool thing about it was if you're on the bus and you're on the sidelines – one of the things that Lou Holtz wanted to do with these younger guys is get them some playing time because he knew that he was going to develop his guys, and there were some guys around the team that were from Jerry Faust's era, and uh, he was trying to kind of weed those guys off and try to get some experience. So got to play, I would say, oh, maybe about 50 or 60 snaps on the offense, an offensive tackle, believe it or not, Uh, which brings me to my next story about a guy named Cornelius Bennett. So Cornelius Bennett was an all-American outside linebacker for the University of Alabama. And at the University of Alabama, uh, we were down there playing in Birmingham in the Iron Bowl, and it was hot. It was probably 110 degrees on on the field, and the turf was probably about 140 degrees. And I swear that when you put your hand on the ground that your hands would burn, and I think that the rubber on your cleats were melting. It was so hot. Uh, but Cornelius Bennett, about the middle of the second quarter, beat a guy named Byron Sproul, a right tackle for what they call it, Alabama. And there's a painting of it. You can look it up. It's called the sack, where he came around and cut Steve Berline in half. And the ball came out and fumbled. And it was one of the biggest plays um, during that era of Alabama football where Cornelius Bennett in the sack, cutting uh, Steve Berline in half with a sack. Well, guess who they put in after that play? Uh, Coach Holt said, "Grunhart, get in there and pull Sp- Spruill out." By the way, uh, fast forward, By- Byron Spruill right now will be the next commissioner of the NBA once uh, Silver Silver right retires. He's he's the next in line. So when he, when you guys hear this, you say, "I know that name, Byron Spruill." Uh, that you're hearing it from the story when he got pulled out after getting uh, giving up the sack to uh, Cornelius Bennett. Well, uh, I went in there and Cornelius Bennett, like you would imagine, an All-American going against a freshman uh, at a loud stadium in Birmingham, Alabama, just abused me. I mean, it was ugly. And I was basically holding on for dear life and trying to do anything I possibly could just get in the way. Um, So I know we're skipping around a little bit, but this is kind of integral to the story. Uh, Fast forward to the Monday night game in 1991 against the Buffalo Bills, Cornelius Bennett, had to play Mike Linebacker because Daryl Talley was hurt. Cornelius Bennett didn't like to play like Mike Linebacker because he liked a lot of space. And guess who the center was to go up against Cornelius Bennett in an uncomfortable position? Me. And I kicked the living crap out of him in that game. And I remember, I wasn't cheap-shotting him, but I certainly wasn't helping him up. And after the game, we were shaking hands, and he came up to me. We talk about it all the time. We're friends on Facebook. He came up to me and said, What was up your you know what And that game? You, know, you were to every play you're hitting. I said, Listen, do you remember back in 1986 when a young freshman, number 75, went in? And he said, No, I don't remember. I said, Do you remember the sack? He goes, Of course I do. Well, I was the guy who went in after that, and you abused me, and payback is a bitch. So, uh, you know, had my career at Notre Dame and had some success and won a national championship.
0: I just kneel down now as
1: the clock continues to tick away the seconds. This place about to explode. Notre Dame's biggest upset. Winning the national championship and, and, you know, I was told this and I, I was told this about Super Bowls. Never had the opportunity to play in one here in Kansas City. But I remember the game going by so fast. Um, when you play in those really big games, the next thing you know, it's the third or fourth quarter, and you're like, wow, how did this go so fast? But I remember just walking off the field with that helmet in my hand and thinking, you know, and looking for my family. And, and my, actually, my roommate was in the band. He was a tuba player. <laughs> so I actually was looking for him on the field, gave him a big hug, and wanted to share it. I, I just wanted to share it with anybody I could share it with. Uh, the, 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 love and, and the commitment and the trust that we had as a team was just so special in 1988 and it won a national championship. Uh, it, it was, we played so many really, really good football teams that year. I think we played the number one, number three, number eight, and number like 11 team. Uh, and I think, I think out of our 11 games, I think we played nine ranked teams so we played a bunch of really good football teams uh, to get there and to beat West Virginia in that game. West Virginia, when we looked over our offensive line, remember we were a bunch of kind of younger guys. They, they looked like the the, uh, uh, the West Virginia mascot guy. I mean, they all had these big beards. They looked like, they looked like uh, just rough and tumbled men. And we looked like just a bunch of little boys. And I was like, oh, my God, how are we going to beat these guys? And, uh, you know, it was just so much fun to uh, to beat that Mountaineer with the, uh, the, the big bearded offensive line, and, and they had the best offensive line in, in, in the country at that time, and we, we out, outplayed them, and it was just uh, it was great. But you know, winning a national championship for the team that you grew up loving, uh, the team that you – it would be like kids right now in Kansas City that are 9, 10, 11 years old, that are watching Patrick Mahomes out there playing and love the Kansas City Chiefs, having an opportunity to get drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs and winning a Super Bowl – And you can imagine what that feeling would be like. Well, that's the feeling I had when I was at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. Seen years over and, uh, you know, I'm getting talked to from some teams and and some interest, but I I I was they didn't know what I was. I played guard in college. Uh, A lot of teams saw me as a center. So you know that usually doesn't equate into being drafted pretty high, okay? Because you're not quite sure what this guy is. So we could probably we'll probably take a chance on him somewhere and, and we'll fit him in. So I was predicted about the fifth or sixth round, and this is back when there was 12 rounds. So yeah, you know, I figure it's the first half of it, and you know that'd be great. Just get drafted somewhere and get an opportunity to play and, and maybe make a football team. So uh, I I get called from the San Francisco 49ers and uh, Bob McKittrich, who was the offensive line coach and a guy named Bob Seaford, who was the head coach and uh, Walsh was the GM. Uh, So they called and said, hey, we want you to come for a visit. Uh, We want to visit you, we want to interview you, want to put you on the board, see what you know. And we'll talk to you a little bit about our draft plans. I said, sure, I mean, free trip to San Francisco, take that. So, you know, get in there and uh, I'm there with all these, I mean, uh, these guys, uh, uh, Sims and uh, Webb, uh, there were big time uh, um, uh, uh, draft picks uh, to be in that draft on the offensive line. And then it was me. So, you know, I've been there once again, you know, uh, the story of my life where I, you know, kind of felt out of place, like I wasn't quite, you know, that upper echelon guy. I was just kind of that hanger on her. Uh, and uh, well, I sat down with Bob McKittrick, who was the offensive line coach, and he said, Tim, uh, we want to talk to you a little bit about the draft. He said, You know, we plan on taking you in the first round of the NFL draft. And I looked at him, and I swear I looked around and said, Are you talking to me? I said, What? He goes, Yeah, he goes, We like the way you play. You know, we need a center. Jesse Sapulo is getting a little bit older. We want to bring you in here. We know you're smart. Uh, you fit into our system. We like the way you finish. Uh, we want to draft you in the first round. And I was like, sweet, I'll take that. And they had the last pick in the first round and they just won the Super Bowl. So I go back and my wife, Sarah, is back at uh, uh, in Notre Dame and we weren't obviously married at the time, but we were dating. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, the 49ers said they're gonna take me in the first round. And I looked at her face and she wasn't that excited about it. She's like, I really don't want you to go to San Francisco. I'm going to Chicago to work, and you're going to be in San Francisco. And she's like, I don't know if this is going to work. I said, well, we'll make it work. Don't worry about it. You know, first round draft test, I'll be able to fly you to San Francisco. So fast forward to the draft day. Uh, we're sitting at my house in Chicago, and uh, the 49ers call. And uh, they say, hey, just want to make sure this is the number we're going to call you at. And, you know, we're looking forward to drafting you here in the first round. 31st pick in the draft. And, uh, you know, we're excited to make you a, a 49er and, and uh, be, you know, be ready for our call.
0: <music>
1: well, we get to about draft pick 25 or 26, and, you know, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat getting ready, you know, making sure the phone's working and making sure none of my buddies are calling. That was one of the things, by the way, never call a friend on draft day. <laughs> Okay, because the phone rings, everybody's jumping and it's like, what's going on over there? Well, you don't call people. So uh, the crazy thing is the 49ers didn't call Uh, on ESPN. I think it was uh, uh, Berman uh, said the the 49ers picked Dexter Carter, wide receiver from Florida State. And I was like, geez. Said, uh, that's different. And then so all of a sudden, the, the phone rang and it was the 49ers. And they said, This, and we didn't think Dexter Carter was going to be there. Uh, so we're definitely going to take you in the second round. You know, you're still going to be a 49er. And I'm like, Yeah, that's cool. You know, I never really expected to be in the first round anyway. Second round, just be just fine. So about uh, an hour later, uh, around the 40th pick, I thought one of my buddies was calling again to check on and see what was going on. And I picked up the phone and Tim Grunhardt, Carl Peterson from the Kansas City Chiefs. We just selected you at the 40th pick. Uh, we're very excited. We'd like you to talk to, to Marty Schottenheimer and Howard Mudd, your offensive line coach. Welcome to the Kansas City Chiefs. And I, you know, talked to those guys. I hung up and, and literally, this guy is my witness. I humped the phone and I, I turned to Sarah and I said, where the hell is Kansas City at? <laughs> I wasn't quite sure. I was like, you know, is it in Kansas? Is it in Missouri? You know, we used to go to Lake of the Ozarks. I knew it was kind of around there. And, uh, you know, growing up, I had no idea. You know, didn't really follow the Chiefs that much. Very excited about being drafted by the Chiefs, but had no idea. The next day, I got on an airplane and fly out and go to a red-coated luncheon and... I meet with Carl Peterson, and he shows me around the stadium. And I'll never forget, we walked down the stadium and onto the field, and I noticed the names uh, on the Ring of Fame. And, um, you know, I was like, what's the deal with those names? And, And Carl said, well, those are the legends that played football here for the Kansas City Chiefs. And he said, that's what you should aspire to, to have your name up there on that Ring of Fame, in the Hall of Fame for the Chiefs. And um, you know, I said, yeah. I said, you know what? That would be something great to aspire to. And just about every game, uh, one of my points of emphasis would be, uh, you know, early in my career, I'd look up and I would know some of the names, uh, but I didn't really particularly know the guys. And later in my career, I'd see guys like, you know, Christian Okoye's name up there or John Alt's name up there or Lloyd Burris's name up there or Duran Cherry's name up there. And I would always look up there and say, you know what? Hey, you know what? Let's play hard today. Let's give ourselves an opportunity to to win the football game and maybe get your name up on the Ring of Fame. And, uh, you know, fast forward uh, after my career 20 years, uh, an unbelievable feeling uh, standing on the field and realizing that uh, a young kid uh, wearing probably one of the ugliest plaid jackets of all time in 1990 coming to the Red Coders luncheon, looking up and, and wishing and hoping to be on the Ring of Fame, uh, you know, it was 30 years later, I uh, was out there on a the field with grown kids and uh, uh, a wife and, uh, and had seeing your name being unveiled. It was uh, the thrill of thrills, most humbling experience I ever had. So early years in Kansas City, um, you know, I, I guess you got to start with uh, some poor decision making. Uh, as a kid from the south side of Chicago, I could reach out of the window of my house and touch the house next door to me. So I said, if I ever make any money, I'm going to buy a ranch. Bad decision. So I bought a ranch out in Lee Summit, uh, not too far from Lake Ottawa, off of Milton Thompson Road, uh, over off of I- uh, off of 50 Highway, uh, about 30 acres. I had a barn, had a pond, uh, and then bought a horse. <laughs> Uh, not a good idea. Uh, as a kid from the South side of Chicago, I have no idea about anything with farming or any horses or anything like that. Uh, but uh, boy, we had a great time. Uh, you know Dave's out moved in with me for the first couple of years, and uh, you know we we would uh, have offensive line parties over, and that horse was part of the group. You know, he would come in, he'd play poker with us, drink beer with us, you know. There were times in the horse, I, I literally was in the house. We'd be sitting here next to him, we had the door open, the horse walking in the house. And, ah, it's the horse. So, Copper the horse was a part of part of the crew. But The one thing that I learned really quick uh, about uh, Kansas City and living here in Kansas City and my fondest memories it's just the enthusiasm and the love that the Kansas City Chiefs fans have for the Kansas City Chiefs and their players. And I thought that was really special. Uh, one of the things is they love you. Uh, they're they're going to root for you. But they're also going to let you kind of have your life too. You, know, you go into the hy V or you go over to the Price Chopper uh, or you go uh, you know to a restaurant, uh, you go to Grozo's Restaurant – and, you know, and, and people would say hello, but they wouldn't bug you. They wouldn't, you know, they'd kind of let you be. And I thought that was really, really cool. Uh, so really liked being in Kansas City. But early memories is just, you know, running on the field uh, at, at, um, at Arrowhead and the sea of red. And people always say that, listen, it's a college-like atmosphere when you go to a, a Chiefs game, which I think is the ultimate compliment for, an, for a professional team, especially an NFL team, that college-like atmosphere. And people always say, well, you know, why is it like a college-like atmosphere? Uh, And it's more than just everybody dressed in a red. It's more than just packing the stadium. and It's more than just being loud. Um, I I feel that uh, through Marty Schottenheimer, Carl Peterson, and the the front office of the Chiefs, they made a, uh, a concerted effort to build relationships with the players and the fans back in the 90s, which was really, really important. Now, how do we do that? Uh, we did it through radio shows. We did it through personal appearances. We did it through, you know, going to different events. And and we were, it was easier back then to kind of intermingle with the fans than it is now. And I feel for these guys now because of social media and, and everybody has a video co- recorder on their phone and all the different things that happen. It really has limited some of that stuff. But the radio shows that we had, we had a blast. And we we would just hang out with the fans and drink a couple of dub beverages with them. And they felt like they had ownership of the team because they knew the guys. So when Joe Schmo fan would go to the game, he'd say, you know what? I hung out with Grunhart and Moss on Thursday night and we talked about this game. You know what? And he was invested in that. And, you know, there was a connection there so it's like college you know why do people say college like atmosphere the enthusiasm of college because those are your classmates and your teammates you know you're in chemistry class right next to the quarterback or you're uh at in the cafeteria right next to the the running back and and you you know the guys who say hello you may sit next to them in class and and that's you build relationships and then you go to the game and you're excited to watch that guy go out and perform because you have a relationship you know them and that's what the chiefs did i thought it was brilliant of the chiefs to do that in the early 90s because win, lose, or draw, they were invested in the player. And uh, so we'd look up in the stands and we'd see somebody who was at the radio show and make eye contact and the eyes are the window to the soul. We shared soulmates. There was it was, it was a bond that was built in the 90s that still is here today. Now, that bond may not be built on the same foundation that it was in the 90s because we had that personal relationship and everything else, but... Um, because you can't do those kind of things, but it's still there. And that's why win, lose, or draw, winning season or losing season, there'll always be chief fans there. Why? Because they have a personal investment in the team emotionally. And it's not just, hey, that's our team, and they're over there, and we're the fans, we're over here. There's a connection, and that connection is what's so important. And that's why you see the enthusiasm and excitement, and that's why teams fear coming into Kansas City, because that, that soul is connected between the team and the fan. In the first part of my career, the moments that kind of stand out, and you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the, the Buffalo Monday night game. I think it was the first Monday night game that was in Kansas City for like 20 years or something. And the Buffalo Bills came in and they were on a roll. Either they were undefeated or only had one loss. And it was like they were like either 12-0 and or 11-1 or something. And they were just destroying everybody. And I'll never forget um, the enthusiasm and in in how loud the stadium was. I mean, you couldn't hear anything. When the 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 Buffalo Bills w- were on offense, I compare it to go in your car, and turn the radio on full blast, and then go drive in bumper to bumper traffic and try to make decisions. I mean it it you know it it's just it just you can't think. Uh, it was so loud, and um, you know just winning that football game and knowing that hey it just felt like a turning point. Uh, in the Chiefs' uh, uh, um, not only season but really uh, in the franchise history, it was a turning point that you know they were relevant again. We were back, so that was an important one. And then uh, you know winning the first playoff game, uh, we we went and uh, played against Oakland and won that game. Uh, it was just so exciting. And we went to Miami and lost in, in a nail biter. Uh, uh, Nick missed a field goal at the very end, and, and we lost. But uh, but, you know, that first playoff game, that first win, especially against your rival and just how loud, how exciting it was. Uh, but, uh, you know, anytime you had an opportunity uh, to, you know, as a, as a just, you know, 22 year old kid, you look around and you're like, man, I'm playing in the NFL. I'm playing out here uh, against the Raiders and the Broncos and, and, and the Packers. And, and these teams, and it's just it's so amazing. It's just, it's surreal. Uh, and you just kind of got to push that away and say, listen, you, you can't think about those kind of things. Just go play. But, uh, you know, every once in a while, it's it's like, I always compare it to, you know, when you're playing a beautiful golf course. You know, you're playing on a pebble beach or you're playing it somewhere and you're just so concentrating on hitting the ball and getting on the green that you're not looking around at what a gorgeous place you're at. And uh, I always told the young guys, you know, just – For a second, sometime in the game, just look around and see the fans and see the the, the, the colors of the the opposing team's helmets and and realize that, man, you're playing in the NFL. And enjoy that that moment because sometimes you forget how blessed and how lucky you are. As you get older, uh, you know, you, you start to have kids and you start having families and and, uh, you know, you have to be cognizant of your time. And, you know, you, 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 you want to be part of the, with the boys and you want to, you know, you want to hang out and bond with the guys. But you realize, you, you know, you have three or four kids at home <laughs> and you got to get home uh, and be a dad too. Uh, but uh, those moments that you have uh, at the end of your career, uh, you know, playing with, uh, with those guys that, you know, Will Shields and Dave Zott, we played next to each other for, like, eight years in a row. Uh, our communication, I mean, we did, all we had to do was grunt or do a hand movement, and they knew we knew exactly what the other guy was saying. The mental telepathy between the three, we used to call ourselves the firm, you know, it was unbelievable. Uh, and you'll never have that kind of relationship, I don't care, with anybody. Not even with your spouse. I mean, you just, you spend so much time and so much effort and so much preparation. And the three guys that, you know, having that relationship and being with those guys and doing doing the special things that we did. And, I, and, and one of my favorite memories, I think it was like 97 or 98, we played the 49ers. And we got the Miller Lite players of the game was the offensive line. Uh, we just had an unbelievable game against a great defense and everything we did, it just seemed to work. Uh, Every communication, every call, uh, every combination, uh, all were just crisp. Uh, So, you know, I I remember remember more the bonding in in later years with with the guys and and communicating with with the guys next to you and and building those relationships. And then even the games, uh, you know, we won a bunch of games, did a lot of great things, but, uh, you know, it was really about the relationships later in my career.
0: I'll
1: give you my best Lou Holtz again. He, he would always say, if you miss one practice, you know it in your in, in your performance. If you miss two practices, the coach knows it in your performance. If you miss three practices, everybody knows it in your performance. Well, I wanted to get out before the coach knew it. And I wanted to get out certainly before the fans knew it. And I knew that my was slowing down. I had some knee issues and I really couldn't push off that well uh, to get, go in certain directions. And, and uh, you know, 11 years took its toll. You know, I played 120 games in a row leading up to my last year. And, uh, you know, I just couldn't bounce back. So, I mean, you know, on Sunday mornings I'd wake up and I'd be just as sore as I was on the Monday morning. And I was like, man, this is getting really too hard to do. And, um, you know, I just wanted to get out uh, while uh, people were saying, oh, man, no, you can do it. You can stay. You can play another year until they were saying, you know, you might want to retire. So I kind of got out on my terms. Uh, You know, I was offered a a contract right after I retired from the Chiefs in in Chicago to go play. And uh, they said, hey, you know, we can squeeze out another year or two. Olin Kroots is the center there. We'd like you to come here and, and be his mentor like Webby was for you. And I just, you know, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. I could have stole a couple more years. And that's what guys do a lot of times at the end. They're stealing money, just stealing paychecks. But, I, you know, I had built a relationship here in Kansas City, and I didn't want to speak out of both sides of my mouth. I loved being here. I loved being a part of this community. You know, uh, I felt like I was in the fabric of the community. And if I would have left just to chase money and come back, I think it wouldn't have been the same. So I decided to retire. Mm-hmm. Looking back on my time with the Chiefs, uh, you know, a lot of really, really good football teams. uh, um, A lot of wins and and not winning playoff games. Um, You know, I think you're judged uh, on Super Bowls. You should be. Uh, And the Kansas City Chiefs of late have won a couple Super Bowls and we're so proud of it. It's like watching your little brother have success out there. It's great to watch him and very happy for him. But you always have that emptiness that you didn't, have the opportunity to do that and you know there's a lot of reasons why you know everybody has their theories uh I just think that by the time the way we played the game so hard so physical and practiced so uh intensely and 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 so uh physically that by the time we got to the end we just didn't have anything left in the tank and you know watching these guys from uh uh the quarterback you know and and uh, watching Kirk Cousins, I think it was in the Buffalo game, when, you know, at the very end of the game, he's like, I just didn't have anything left. I didn't have anything left in the tank. And we expended so much energy uh, as a organization in the 90s and the way we played defensively and offensively that by the time we got to the playoffs, by the time we got to those big games at the end, we just didn't have anything left in the tank. And that's a shame. And that, that's no knock on Marty. It's no knock on the players. It's just the reality of what happened in the situation. And, and Andy Reid uh, and, and Patrick Mahomes has had the ability to, you know, uh, top off the tank a little bit uh, and, and finish strong. And, uh, and that's been great. So, you know, looking back at my time in the Chiefs, you know, having over 100 wins in the decade of the 90s, you know, making the playoffs nine out of 11 years, but yet not going to the Super Bowl. They're very disappointing. You know, I, I've done radio. I've coached in NFL Europe. I've coached in college football. I've coached high school football. I've been a teacher. Uh, I've, uh, uh, I've, I've done some motivational speaking. I've wrote books. I've done a lot of different things. But I think my passion, and and this is coming to an end too, and, and eventually, a lot of times, was coaching kids. Um uh mike webster was my mentor and and, uh, in the book i talk about a story i get the book to read it but i talk about a story about how mike webster saved my career with just a couple kind words you kind of talked me off the ledge and uh saved my career there's no way that my name would be up on the ring of fame if mike webster wasn't there well when mike webster got sick and mike webster disappeared um, I always felt like, you know, I kind of let him down. I, I didn't know where he was at, and I really wasn't looking for him. And he was there when I needed him, and I wasn't there when he needed me. So um, I said, you know, I'm not going to let that happen. I, I'm going to give kids an opportunity to use football as a vehicle to go on and go to college if they want to. But more importantly, learn life lessons. You know, uh, football is a great microcosm of life. You know, there's forked down situations in everybody's life with relationships and families and jobs and everything else you got to convert you got to find a way you know when it gets hard you got you can't just quit you you got to keep battling and that's what happens in football and in life so um you know i've had opportunities to do uh you know some uh uh, you know color commentating in college and even i did some with with the chiefs in the nfl early and had opportunities to do stuff with that and i turned them down because you know i kind of uh look back and say you know mike Gave me an opportunity to have a football career, and I'm going to coach kids. And now with, you know, with my legs are kind of getting a little bit old and weak and, you know, having a knee replacement, now a hip replacement, uh, it's just hard to stand out there on the turf as much as it used to be. And I'm going to miss that, uh, but that, that's coming to an end too. And then I'll find another way. Uh, but, you know, I, I think one of the things that um, that I've been blessed to be able to do is kind of give back and, and pay, pay it forward. Uh, and give kids opportunities to uh, go to college. You know, there's a football program out there for everybody if you want to play. And I just think it's so important for kids to play uh, college sports because it keeps you motivated. It keeps your time uh, uh, time management uh, keeps you in line. Uh, it, it, it you know you have a lot of support. It's hard, but it's a it's a good opportunity to go ahead and get your degree. You know, not everybody's going to play in the NFL, and not everybody's going to play in college, but uh, you know, if you give yourself an opportunity to uh, go and, and experience that, I think it's important. So that's what I've been doing. This is from my heart. It's, um, I'm not just saying it to say it. I'm not trying to score any brownie points. I'm not trying to make myself out to be some kind of saint or martyr because I'm completely not that. But when people look back at the story, I hope that they see themselves in the way I played, because I, I never really considered myself a professional athlete. I always consider myself a fan playing the game, and and growing up, going to Cubs games and and seeing, you know, guys like Rick Sutcliffe on the mound, and, and seeing, uh, you know, Ryan Sandberg on the field, and and then going to Bears games and watching Walter Payton play, um, you know. Uh, I just always wanted just in, in this really, really quick story. I waited in line for an hour and a half, two hours to get Walter Payton's autograph. And, uh, and I'm not, this isn't a a slam on Walter. I'm not trying to do that, but I got up there and he signed my book or signed the, whatever I had and didn't even look up and all I wanted to do is look up but I just wanted to share just a moment with the guy that I used to watch and and I and at that moment I realized listen if that if I ever have that opportunity you know I want to be able to look I mean, you, if you come and get my autograph I'm going to look you in your eye and I'm going to say hello or if I meet you on the street I'm going to say hello and I'm I'm going to be as positive as I possibly can because I want to share the, my excitement and my love for the game and my love for Kansas City with people and that that's what I hope I hope they look back and say you know what good football player but a great guy and a great a great uh, part of our community. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was able to share his love for the game with us. And, oh, by the way, because of him, you know, we love the Chiefs maybe a little bit more than we did before. And if, if, if I can have that, that's all I need. That's all I want. And, and it, listen, I'm not placating anybody. That's really what I want. I, I just want people to use me as a conduit to... Love this sport that gave me so much in this organization that gave me a chance.
0: Remember that little boy with the Chiefs helmet painted Fighting Irish Gold back at the beginning of the episode? I asked him, what do you tell that kid now?
1: Play baseball. <laughs> Play baseball. You won't be the $6 million man here with all these bionic parts. Uh, you know what? I, you know, I tell him. It's gonna be a fun ride, enjoy it. And, uh, um, you know, I don't think I'd tell him anything about what the future holds, because if if, if I knew that I was gonna have this kind of success and and have my name up on the ring of fame to play in the NFL as long as I did, I probably wouldn't have worked as hard. I probably, I, I had to have a chip on my shoulder. Uh, I was always the guy that, you know, I, I always felt like, you know, they're underestimating me, and uh, they're not giving me a chance. And I'll show them. So I didn't. I don't want that. I don't want that kid to know anything about it because I want him to chip on his shoulder, and I want him to be hungry.